Hey, welcome to the Reimagine Podcast, episode 131. This is Greg English. We're excited about the kickoff of a new fall season. For our next week's episode, we will be talking with Eileen McDar and her work on resilience and burnout to breakthrough. So as you finish this last week of summer, take a listen to episode 62 with Dr. Jim Wilder and his work with neurotheology and linking brain science with the Bible. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Welcome to the Reimagine Podcast, a podcast that seeks to reimagine faith and life and community as we link, learn, and live together. I'm Greg English, along with Brad Hoffman and Brian Dupuy. Today, on episode 62, we have a conversation about a neurotheology and how it is impacted by our attachments and the impacts of our spiritual formation. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Hey, hey. Hello. It's another great day in the River City of Richmond. It is. It's hot. It's hot today. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Yep. It's, hey, great. it's like 94 today, 68 and rainy tomorrow. I know. Come on, Virginia. Yeah. Right in time for the weekend. Yeah. That's the way it works. <laughs> that is. But it should clear up for my um, my uh, Memorial Day experience. Oh. Uh, yep. Hitting old Camden Yards to watch the oh, nice. Orioles and the Twins play. That's right. Uh, t- yeah. Yep. So it's going to be a good time. So hope yeah. you guys have plans. Yeah. Not that well. I was going to say not that exciting, but yes, yes, we'll be at the beach. So, yeah, yeah, we'll, be, yeah we'll have, we'll have well exciting plans. Yeah, yeah. yeah we'll have fun. Talking we'll be in the mountains. We'll be in oh, the man. So, we're all scattered yeah. out. That's so, right. I'm wondering uh, in the scatteredness, uh, yes. will you too see the UFO that I might see? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Uh, and I'm not sure they call them UFOs anymore. No, no. no. Yeah, they're now aerial phenomena. Yeah. Unidentified uh, aerial, aerial phenomena. phenomena. Yes, yeah. it's a new term, and it's not necessary that uh, ET has arrived. Right, but there's the concern, and there's supposed to be a report coming out in Congress here soon uh, from the Pentagon or whatever about uh, just is somebody in our airspace, and what does that really mean to us? Yeah. And it's not necessarily looking like a a true airplane, but still right. we shouldn't blow it off. Yeah. So this is the or blow it up, blow, blow it up <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, or maybe we shouldn't draw attention at all. No, yeah. just maybe we just like ignore it. Right. Yeah. It goes away. So right? let so, them do their own thing. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, I mean, like these things that pop culture put into TV years ago are like, Oh yeah. Becoming real conversations. Yeah. You, you remember Lost in Space? Yeah. I only yeah, remember absolutely. Pigs in Space. Remember the Muppet yeah. Show? Pigs in Space. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I remember that? That's a that's different like area. Kind of thing. Yeah. It was like Lost in Space. Yeah. Classic, too. Yeah. 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 Mr. Smith. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But danger, UFOs danger. were always saucers in our minds, right? That's right. not... Yeah, right. I mean, it's 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 fooling with us here. Yeah. So no, what, what's your take on it? Well, the, that 60 Minutes episode uh, and for the record i did not watch it at its airing time i saw it later on video <laughs> nobody give me grief about yeah, that. that's, that's right. a quality program though yeah. so so they had this conversation with these two these two uh, navy pilots and uh they had a personal experience with something some kind of craft um that was moving in ways they couldn't uh, couldn't fully explain and um we apparently don't have that kind of technology so who knows who knows uh who knows what that is or what that means, but like you said, there's supposed to be some report coming out. I'm sure. The wheels in Ezekiel. I'm sure it'll be blackened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm, I'm sorry, it goes back to like it was first noted and like seen uh, over San Diego not not too yeah. long ago in that zone. But then there's times it goes back to 2007, there's reports of it. Yeah. Back into the 1950s, there was this conversation about yeah. it. So, it, what do you want to happen with it? 
I mean, do you have some imaginative thing you're thinking like, well, I hope we learn this or not? Mm. I'm kind of oblivious to it. I'm, I'm not a space <laughs> cadet. Be, you know, like no reaction yeah, for you know. it. It's like, well, yeah, if they're there. I, yeah. No, no, no. I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating. Uh, I think uh, everything is pop culture, and so it's an opportunity yeah. to have a conversation yes, yeah. about it. <clears throat> yeah. You know. I, I'd love, you know, it's been quite a year. I don't, I don't know if... <laughs> If this is what we want to end things with, like, hey, (laughs) guess what? There is also this superior uh, life form. The question is, how do you bring that back to the gospel? I mean, that's an interesting, that would be an interesting take in how you bring that back to faith, in a sense. Because that, I think anytime people talk about it, there's this sense of anxiety that rises about the unknown and, you know, if that's real or not, and... So I don't know. I mean, yeah. there's a way to bring it back to a faith conversation in mm. a sense. Yeah, so yeah. I know I'm the pastor spiritualizing the conversation yeah, not, here. Not, not just the anxiety of it, but yeah. the, the, the fear of who is it and who's behind it is yeah. another element it's for, other, yeah. you know, it's really, God and country idea. You know, if, it, yeah. if it's some other superpower or something along those lines, yeah, or then if you, it's actually something else. Yeah, so. then you're dealing with fear. Yeah, oh, definitely fear. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But, um, it's, it's, some, it's some 12-year-old with a drone. <laughs> That's what we're going to find out. It's Tyler. It's yeah. Tyler, this Tyler with the drone. Yeah. He's flying. Yeah. Yeah. It's a 12-year-old with a drone. I thought it was very funny. You know, Phil Nich- Nicholson won the uh, PGA event last weekend, oldest major champion now 50 years and 11 months. Yeah. But on, uh, I think it was hole number, hole, hole, I forget what hole it was. Hole in the middle of, of, right before he took his swing, he backed up and says, come on, can you get the drone out of the line of sight? I mean, yeah. those are just not things you think about we would be hearing <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah, into yeah. everyday life yeah. now. And that thing yeah. is buzzing up and down. Oh, He's yeah. like, really? Come on. Yeah. The drone, I'm going to hit it. Like, move yeah. it. Yeah. First of all, who can hit the ball that, that straight, he that can. sweet to he hit can. the drone and it's flying <laughs> right in front right. of you? But, so, very, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, saw, I saw that. Uh, it's a massive drone. And uh, I saw a shot with him. And then right behind him, all of a sudden, Right into the shot, drops this uh, drone right behind him, like something out of a sci-fi movie. Yeah. See, it's going to be. That's what it is. We a drone. Uh, there it is. We got it solved. All right. Yeah. Next. Yeah. yeah go next. about your business. Don't worry. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Don't worry. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, yep. Let's dive into the show today. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm excited about it. Uh, it's Me too. Yeah. Very, very interesting and, and look forward to the, the learnings that will come out of it. So today we welcome uh, Jim Wilder to the podcast and we're going to discuss the idea of attachments and neurotheology. And a lot of people will come by the office. And, and there's Brad, you have a couple of those books on the shelf as well. And they said, you know, I've just never even thought about neurotheology. What does that mean? Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of thing. So we'll dive into just a basic understanding of that. But, you know, Jim believes that the church should be a place where you experience authentic community and sustainable transformation. So since 1970, uh, he has been linking brain science with the Bible to create simple, practical tools for churches to build authentic community and transform lives. I love that idea right there, transform lives. Yeah. It's not program formats. Right, right. It's about transformation. So Jim is the founder of Life Model Works and chief neurotheologian. He is the author of several books, two which include Renovated, God, Dallas Willard, and the Church That Transforms, and then the most recent project, The Other Half of Church, with his colleague Michael Hendricks. So Jim, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's good to be with you. You know, Greg, you mentioned pigs in space. And back in the 70s, I was designing um, research equipment, and we'd have to program them. Every once in a while, the program would just spin out and never come back. And we would say, it went pigs in space. <laughs> you brought that back to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, we're about 
fueling emotions here on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Reminiscing. Yeah, reminiscing. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on, on the uh, podcast today. We're excited about this conversation uh, and where it's going to take us. Can you share with us briefly your journey and uh, how did you come to this space of formation in your own life? Yeah, well, my parents were missionaries. I grew up in the church. Um, They were an interdenominational mission, so I went to all kinds of different Christian churches and backgrounds and stuff like that. But by the time I was uh, 19, I wasn't sure whether I believed in God or not. Uh, or whether uh, just, you know, my whole culture had trained me to believe this stuff, you know. And so I went in a bit of a spiritual crisis. And in that time, I discovered that God actually interacts with people. This present and interactive God uh, actually, you know, would help me think or know or see things that um, I wouldn't have done on my own. And so that became a very formative part for my, for me, I witnessed some, uh, some amazing healings in response to prayer. Mm. One in particular was someone who had post-traumatic stress disorder. I wondered what that was about. So I started studying religion and um, psychology, both to see what was going on. Got a PhD in one and a master's in the other and never could put the two of them together. And then I went to work in a center, and my first supervisor um, was Dallas Willard's wife, Jane Willard. And so here we have this spiritual formation, and we're trying to figure out how, you know, both sides are trying to do the same thing. You know, we're trying to get a human being to grow up and act and and, uh, respond and be the kind of person that God wants them to be. So there's one whole set of tools being used on the spiritual formation side and a completely different set of tools being used on the counseling side. And anyone who goes back to the 80s will realize there was a huge fight between psychology and Christianity uh, during that time. And so being right in the middle of that, I thought, you know, they... Those two things shouldn't be incompatible. So this neurotheology is, you know, the the neurology part is how the brain learns. And the spiritual part is what God wants us to learn to be. And when they combine together, can you learn to be the person God wants you to be the way the brain learns things? And, you know, it, it seemed that a lot of the practices, um, we're good for some people, but not for others. And and the, the problems that, you know, we ended up looking into and uh, trying to solve were, how do we get a really permanent change that goes into your character? So as Dallas Willard would say, your, your initial response, you know, is going to be Christ-like, not something that you have to pace on later to sort of manage your sin. Mm-hmm. But you've really been changed to the point where, you know, when your enemy comes along, you actually respond with love as opposed to, you know, trying to control your dislike of them and then try to do something loving afterwards. You know, that was it's just fascinating stuff for me because, you know, I, know, I suppose like most of us, I wanted to find something working in my own character, too, and in my own family and my own church. And could we really live this way? Kind of exciting. Mm hmm. Could you say just just briefly um, um, and maybe generally that the disagreement there between psychology and Christianity? Uh, well, why were those two things on opposite sides? Uh, 
just because I'm thinking as people are thinking through this, maybe some of these same things may come up in them uh, that uh, we could help address. Yeah, well, one of the major psychological figures of the time uh, came out with a statement that therapy produced sanctification. Now, if you want to trace a good church fight for a few centuries, <laughs> just follow the topic of sanctification back. And so to propose that sanctification was being done by human beings in therapy, which is what it sounded like, was certainly not going to play very well with, uh, you know, the theological side, because, you know, there's some changes that only God can make. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, this debate now, is it all up to God or is there a human part to, you know, developing character? And uh, that's always been... Yeah, especially since the Enlightenment, a really um, top uh, theological issue. How much is the human being involved and how much is the Holy Spirit involved and how much does God do? And, you know, rather than have an either or perspective, you know, it's, it's one or the other. I, I have come to the conclusion that God intends to have these things work together for good. And so there's a, you know, how much human effort do you need? A hundred percent. How much God effort do you need? A hundred percent. You know, without, you know, if we would kick back and just wait for God to make us holy um, and don't do anything about it ourselves, I don't think that's going to get very far. James would kind of agree with me, uh, I think. Um, But, you know, that was the debate right there, you know. And so trying to figure those things out and, and move that together into one unified model is why we came up with the life model. Um, so a model for life, the way God created it and what's the human part of maturity and what's the divine part of, uh, uh, transformation. So a lot of people, when they think about, I don't know what, how much the term actually spiritual formation is really used. Uh, we, we use the term discipleship, but that picture looks like a program format or a written set of curriculum that we just say, uh, let's take this course, let's take this course, or I need a deeper study. But yet the transformation part uh, seems to be more of the struggle or seeing that, that natural change in people's lives. We get more knowledge, but do we struggle with the transformation part? So if someone were to come to you and say, you know, I, I'm, I want to look for a path to spiritual maturity. How would you uh, begin to process that for them? Well, that was really the nature of my conversation with Dallas Willard uh, that, you know, re- resulted in the uh, conference and the, and the book that you just mentioned there about um, you know, the church of Dallas Willard and, and the church that transforms. Um, the question was spiritual formation. Is that different from human maturity or not? Mm-hmm. And at that point, they're held to be completely different things. Human maturity is about dealing with emotions and uh, especially coming out of some of the uh, reformers. Emotions were the things that give you, take you to sin. So emotions were bad. And, uh, you know, so you had to get rid of those to have this spiritual life and this sort of spiritual maturity and, and spiritual maturity was, I, I really enjoyed asking pastors and people about this question. Cause they always looked at me kind of like deer in the headlights and go on. Well, uh, and what they almost always came back with is what you learned in Sunday school. You should, you should pray, you should read your Bible 
um, daily, um, and you should uh, go to church. And, and those three things basically summed up what most people had to say about spiritual maturity. Um, the problem was that we lived, worked in a counseling center where almost all of our counselees that came in had Christian parents, and they'd given up their Christianity for the simple reason that they saw Christianity didn't change their parents' character. Mm-hmm. Uh, their parents believed the right things, but their character was usually, and the ones that came in for counseling, worse than the pagan neighbor next door who was, you know, enjoyable and good to get along with and, uh, you know, a lot of fun and their parents were having anger problems and things like that. So if someone came to me, I would say this, that spiritual maturity is everything that human maturity, normal human maturity is plus. And that's what Dallas Willard and I came to. It's like when you're fully developed with everything that a good human would have for dealing with your emotions and other people, now you have to be transformed into something even better than that. Hmm. And this is something God has to add to what a a normal human would be. Uh, It's not something separate from it. So spiritual maturity should really include the absolute best in human relationships, the absolute best in human self-regulation of emotions, the absolute best in human thinking. And then it has to add something that only God could bring to it, which is going to take us to a level of, of, you know, almost every religion in the world will teach you that you should treat your and your friends, your neighbors, like you treat yourself. But this idea that we should spontaneously love other people that are enemies, this is a Christian uniqueness. How do you do that? And normal humans don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so God has to give us something that is beyond what human beings could do uh, in order to begin to get into the spiritual maturity side of it. Uh, maybe a little bit weedy kind of explanation but we can start there anyway you can ask questions (laughs) no i think that's good i think that's good you know you talk a lot or talk about um identity and beliefs and attachments um can you unpack a little bit of that about how identity shapes or doesn't shape how beliefs shape and don't shape and then kind of this whole conversation about attachments and attachment love yeah um First of all, uh, a little quick lecture about the brain. Uh, On the right side of your brain, which is the dominant side, uh, the information starts at the base and the back and moves itself uh, up through the brain, uh, up to the front of the brain, going through a whole lot of different processes. And that side of the brain actually runs faster than conscious thought and runs six cycles per second and conscious thought runs at five. So um, the what the fast part of the brain is always trying to figure out is who am I right now and what is it like my people to do? Mm-hmm. And so it's the identity forming part and it starts at the kind of at the base with attachment. Uh, it's looking at the world saying who and what is personal to me And we only pay attention to the things that are personal. The brain just dumps all the other stuff out. You might notice you're walking down the street 
when you get home, you'll have forgotten almost everything you saw except a few things that were personal to you. You know, you see your dog running down the street, you'll remember that. You won't remember the license plates of every car that was parked on there and stuff like that. Uh, your brain is looking for this personal situation. And this added up the sum of what it is that uh, my people are and what they do in every situation is what we call identity. That's the identity part of the brain right there. Uh, when it's done with its fast process, it sort of shifts the attention over to the left side of the brain that runs slower and say, why don't you figure out what the details are and how, what words go through this and how to explain it and what the processes are. What are we going to believe about it? So the brain is basically one-way traffic. There's feedback loops and stuff like that, but figuring out who I am always comes before what I believe. <laughs> the props, problem with uh, uh, the uh, way we usually do Christianity is that we try to get uh, what I believe to change who I am. <laughs> but that's the opposite direction from uh, the way the brain flows. So who gets to talk to me about who I am? And the answer is only those people that I have a personal attachment with. Our identity is hidden behind a firewall that says only my people can talk to me about who I am and how I should act. So right now, uh, you know, like the race relations in the United States, one of the problems is that most people identify as their people, only people from their racial group. And so someone for, who's not from your racial group or, you know, if they wear blue hats instead of red hats or whatever else, you know, is your, your identity group, you know, the identity center of the brain just screens out whatever they're saying as really relevant to me. Um, so we've got these, you know, these conflicts going on. And if we want to form our character, we have to have a, a personal attachment, somebody who brings us joy, who we say, yeah, that's that's someone I love. That's my people. And, you know, you know you're know, you a pastor, Brad, but to have a real impact with people, people have to get to the point where they say, that's my pastor. That's the person. He's He has a right to talk to me about who I am and who I should be. Uh, if you don't pass that barrier, you're giving information, but it's just not going into the part of the brain that changes our character. Right. So that's, uh, you know, you ask something about beliefs. They, those are the procedural memories. So let's say we have our identity all screwed up, which is true of every human being I've met so far. <laughs> Fair enough. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, procedures, what processes, what beliefs should we have of how do we get back to being the person I should be? And if you believe that the way to get back to be the person you should be is by, you know, magic mushrooms or smoking little weeds or, you know, uh, doing, you know, uh, crack cocaine or whatever else it is, or releasing your inner self by running naked through the woods, that's the procedure you will follow to try to find out who we really are. Hmm. Now, if you believe that God actually created us and he knows more about us at any given instant than we do, then following him and noticing his thoughts and hanging out with his people 
would be the thing that we would, we should do every time we forget who we are. Mm. Um, and so beliefs are extraordinarily important. They don't change uh, our identity directly, but they will change the procedures we follow to try to find our way to our true identity. Uh, and if we get those wrong, of course, we'll be chasing the wrong uh, the wrong identity and trying to make it work. Man, that's uh, wow. I was, that, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking through just yeah. that idea of uh, how backwards we, we, we look at it. Oh, I know. I mean, I think that's for me. That's a, that's a, as a pastor, as a leader. I mean, that's a frustration. I mean, I'm, I'm 57 years old. I've been doing this a long time. And how many sermons have you preached? How many talks have you had? How many lessons? How many groups? How many? And, and yet you've, you've articulated all this information and yet you are doing this temperature gauge and it's like, nothing's changed. Yeah. Nothing's happened. And so it's like, I think we, you know, they talk about pastors getting burned out. I think that's, mm. that's an equation of the burnout is we go about our, our role, perhaps, maybe we're doing it wrong because we are focusing on information rather than loving relationships. And so from that standpoint, we we aren't seeing transformation and our desires to see because we know the spirit transforms. And so yet it's um, it's 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 a huge frustration, yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, and what you said about parents of of folks that came into the practice um, that people struggled with faith because of what they saw in people that they were close to and there was no transformation. Um, That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, do you just give up or what? <laughs> well, I think I think you're right. The answer has been to double down. Like I'm going to I'm going to teach more. I'm yeah. going to get you know undo uh, one more study. Yeah, and get yeah. One more book in. Yeah. And everything else. And if I get that, then that's really going to change. And and you can chase that your your whole entire life. Um, and never find what you're looking for. No. No. Yeah. Um, what do you say to what, what? What do you say to people that uh, express that you know I'm just doing this or I'm I'm doubling down? I'm just stuck. I'm here. I'm not being transformed. I'm not seeing what Jesus wants me to see. Uh, you know what? Where do you begin with that with them? Well, the, it's kind of tough, really, because it, it's it's a Western point of view that's kind of permeated our sub our whole culture. Mm-hmm. And every place I go, no matter what the denomination is, the idea is if I give you better information, you'll make better choices. Mm. And, um, you know, that's basically voluntarism, which came out about, um, you know, 500 years ago and got built into our um, theological culture. So um, the question is really about two two ways of knowing. Do we know God by believing all the right things about him or do we know God by loving him? And I think a lot of the answer to that goes back to the upper room discourse where uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples and saying things like, you know, you need to abide in me. We translate it abide, but actually the uh, the translation would be you need to be attached. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then he talks about the actual mechanism of attachment in the brain is joy. So he says, I, my prayer for you is that my joy uh, would be in you and that 
you know, you'll have this love that I have with the father, this loving connection, this joy for the brain. Joy means we're glad to be together. It's not a abstract thing. It's like, wow, that's you. I'm glad to see you. You know, that expression you have when your babies and your dog and your, you know, your grandparent, grandchildren and, you know, or if you're really stuck in a, in a bad situation and someone comes to help you and you look and go, Oh, there you are. Finally, somebody to get me out of this, you know, that's joy, you know, joy is we're really glad to be together. So this Jesus was, you know, really glad to be with his disciples. He said, with uh, great desire, I've desired to have this meal with you. It's like, I, I really, 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 really want to be with you. That That is joy. And he had that with his father. He had that with his disciples. Most Christians, I find, will have it one way or the other. They'll have some joy to be with God, but get the people out of here. Or this joy to be with people and you know, you have this wonderful human service kind of Christianity, but you wonder where God went in the middle of that mix. This, this, this blend of, of joy is what Jesus said uh, is going to be required uh, to make disciples. Um, and, you know, it will result in an attachment to God. You know, and the other thing that creates attachment is feeding so, um, you know, he's going to give them a meal. So central to our worship, there's this meal that God gives us. And you remember the original sin was letting somebody other than God feed us. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But we've almost we've made it so ritualized that we don't realize anymore that God is really feeding us and that, uh, that you know, we are supposed to respond with joy to this source of life. And, you know, bringing that kind of relational connection back in. Uh, not only to our, our um, services, but to relating with each other. You know, coming to church has lost an awful lot of being glad to be with each other. Uh, and the, if there's one sweet thing about the COVID thing, it's that people are realizing, you know, maybe there was a whole lot more to being glad to be together in church than we thought there was. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's something missing on Zoom. <laughs> and so I think we have a chance to rediscover some of these things together. The God that's glad to be with us and his people who are glad to be with us. It's putting those two things together again. And there is an that's- educational component. Right? I mean, um, because, again, it, depending on your view of God, um, there are some people's view of God where uh, there can really be no attachment. And right. I mean, there, there are some people who uh, have a view of God that that says, well, I I don't have loving attachment um, with this view. Well, that's exactly where my crisis at 19 came. I mean, I believed all the right things about God, at least as close as any good Christian parents or missionaries could make sure their children (laughs) knew and believed. But um, as Della, let's see, it was um, David Tackle once said, my view of prayer was it was like sending postcards to God. You know, I'd write my request and send it to him. Then you just see if later on something happened or not. This the sense that we connect with God's mind. He interacts with us. This kind of present and interactive God uh, is one of the big theological uh, questions for people in the West. Uh, I constantly run into that question like, well, what do you mean God's present and interactive and, and you know, you know, 
um, when I go to third world countries, as they're sometimes called, there is very little question at all about the active presence of God. Uh, but the way we typically do church is not helping people become more aware of the active presence of God. We're, we're taught basically, uh, you know, in seminary, here's the right beliefs you should get them to be aware of, and then they'll make the right choices. A formula which is continuously not working well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, one, one thing I was curious about is is when you um, talk about not only our direct attachment, let's say, to God, but how does that impact the people that are attached to me, right? So the people that, that love me, um, and that I interact with, what's the relationship there? Well, I think it's pretty intense. If you go back to the Great Commission, um, and you read that in in relationship with the upper um, room discourses of Jesus at the Last Supper, one of the things that he says in the Last um, Supper that just amazes Thomas, he can't believe it, is from this point on, the world isn't going to see me, but you will see me if you love the Father. If you have this loving connection with, with the Father, you'll be able to see me and see the Father. Uh, this is completely blowing the mind of the disciples. So when he is about to ascend, and we just went past ascension Sunday, what, a couple of weeks ago? Um, when he's about to ascend, he said, go into the world and be my witnesses. Now in the West, we've convinced, converted this into go into the world and, and teach everybody the proper beliefs about me. But if you put it in the context of the upper room, go into the world and be the ones who can see that I'm there. Mm. A witness in that original sense isn't somebody who's got their uh, uh, apologetic down. It's somebody who can actually see that God's present and doing something. And so you're supposed to go around going, you know, God is really here right now. And I see what he's doing and I hear what he's thinking and I'm involved with what's going on. We're interacting, he and I. Um, imperfectly, by the way, and that's why I need some other people around with me who are also interacting with God to, you know, correct my distortions, because, you know, we all know how suspicious we get when somebody said, God told me this or that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been in psychology long enough to have met a bunch of them. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but this sense that God is present, uh, very, very important. And then it says, and... Um, and make disciples. But if you look at the text kind of carefully, the implication is that they're your disciples. Mm. They're people who are attached to you. So you see what God is doing. Then you have people who become attached to you. And as Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. I'm seeing what Christ is doing. You're following me. You will learn from me how to see God there and and really we've lost that sense almost entirely uh, in the west uh, we think we're just making disciples for jesus so you know as soon as someone makes a decision to be a christian we'll put them in the right program but you know what jesus did was very odd he said well let's let's share finances for a couple of years we'll, we'll share you know the, this experience you'll come to be like me i think the idea of sharing finances with our disciples is enough to discourage most people from even considering the idea. <laughs> <laughs> 
stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but what if we are making disciples of people who we're teaching them how to see what God's doing right now in this moment, the way I am learning mm. to see what God is doing right now in this moment, the, the, the very present experience of God which we have to constantly judge by what we know to be true and what he's done in the past or what he's done in the scripture and what our, our community of other people who've seen what God is doing. I mean, we need all those safeguards, right? right. But maybe we need that personal attachment. Mm-hmm. One of the problems with dealing with Muslims, for instance, is that most Muslim cultures believe that anytime you befriend somebody, the intention is to have a lifelong relationship with them. Mm-hmm. So when Christians go and try to convert Muslims, and as soon as they convert, they go, okay, now I'm moving on to somebody else. They're completely befuddled by this, you know, now why did you dump me? I thought we were going to be a, a you know, start a new relationship here. Uh, the relational aspect has just gotten lost in, in the West. Um, and so it, it seems pretty radical when we talk about putting it back in. Could God really mean uh, that we're supposed to um, um, not only uh, form an eternal relationship with God, but also with the people around us. And if that's the case, then our attachment becomes central to saying, you know, no matter what's happening, my connection to you, my joy to be with you is is central. I, I, I am here because in part I bring my love and in part because um, I bring God's love. Yeah. And the people that I am attached to, uh, I am more open to what they're attached to, just simply because uh, I have an attachment with them, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, a brain phrase for that is acquired value. The people who I have an attachment to acquire value. uh, uh, Well, if I'm attached to someone, they're attached to anybody else. Whoever they're attached to acquires value to me. So pretty easy to see when any of our children get married or when we get married. You know, we marry this one person, but they've got all these other people. Mm-hmm. who we would not normally have anything to do with, but they acquire value by virtue of that attachment. Right. So, you know, if that's true, then we would expect that God is trying to create a people. And we would look in scripture and say, there's a people of God. Perhaps the old Testament might give us an example of how God was creating a people. We might find that language in the new Testament, that there are people of God. Once we were not a people, but now we uh, become a people, uh, Peter says. But in the West, again, we've been taught basically how to make church by creating an organization. And an organization is a completely different structure than a people. A people is based on who I love and who I'm connected with. An organization is based on what's, what functions do I produce. Yeah. And so it's very hard for an organization I would say even impossible for an organization to produce a people. Uh, and this has been one of the struggles in the church. It's especially gotten clear since, um, uh, I would say, the Vietnam War, uh, which I'll, I could go into a little bit if you want to know how that affected American theology and education. But uh, um, the, the Vietnam War did a great deal to convert the church into an organization instead of a people. Um, 
because the way to get out of the war was to um, go to seminary. It was one of the few ways you could get out. So a lot of people went into seminary hoping to become a professional pastor, Mm. a concept that really didn't exist before that time. Before that, a pastor was a member of his flock and congregation and took care of them. A professional could come and go. Uh, you know, and, and not really be attached to people. So the the, the concept that developed when the Vietnam group eventually took over seminaries was that a pastor shouldn't really form attachments with his congregation. You'd be better off to just, you know, stay professional and distant like counselors were, are trained to do. Um, but this idea of attachment really disappeared quite strongly from the church from that point on. Now we're looking at, should it be reintroduced? And um, mm-hmm. uh, that's part of this dialogue. And if, do, if we do that, then we really need to consider how do we create a people instead of simply um, making an organization. And if we get good at creating a people, maybe we can do it with ones that weren't a people, like some of from another race or things like that. Uh, because uh, doing or doing activities together doesn't create a people out of out of people who are you know not connected to each other. Um, so I'll I'll drop the topic there. You can <laughs> no, yeah, no, I mean that's that's, yeah, that's yeah. good stuff. No, I mean that definitely is. Um, I mean, there's so much here. I mean, it's like you almost have to pause and unpack sections of that. Um, as well. I mean, this is just, but I'm fascinated with the, I mean, it's almost like you're having to change a mindset. So you're changing the way people, I mean, we talk about the Western church. I mean, there, there are so many challenges there in, in what we've become and what we need to undo and in a sense become different. And, and there again, I don't know if the becoming is the right terminology to use, but I do think, I mean, just from the standpoint of the institution, the organization to the people, I mean, that is, that's such a huge distinction um, for any church, you know, as is for us, but for any church as well. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I think about the implications it has not, not just for people in groups, but even families mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, uh, a parent as as uh, a, a guide, uh, a disciple maker in their family, and what that f- spiritual formation looks like um, when they take that on, and they their children who have this loving attachment toward them, and um, man, there's just there's so many there's so many uh, different places that this uh, this shapes and informs, and and I'm also thinking about there's so many ways in which. Um, at least the church, like you said, in the West has, has leaned in on areas that, that are the wrong areas to lean into and have maybe run away from some areas that are the areas they should have leaned into, you know, uh, when it comes to uh, attachment and formation. Um, yeah. Well, one of the interesting things for me, because I've had a chance to work with Bible translators around the world, is the degree to which the culture informs how the Bible was translated. <laughs> On the one hand, we have to translate it in terms that the culture understands, or the Bible becomes sort of meaningless. But uh, in our particular case, m- most of the major translations into English were done by volunteerists. So they've all automatically, as they're going along, uh, use their understanding that this is all about having the right beliefs and making the right choices to inform what words they chose. And so, uh, you know, 
the word attachment, for instance, uh, almost doesn't appear in any English translations. But if you look at some of the words that we're dealing with from both Greek and Hebrew, uh, they mean to glue things together. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, you should glue yourself to God, the Old and New Testament both say. Well, what would we call that in English now? Uh, you know, it's translated like you should believe or have faith. Well, we, we've moved of having faith into this, you know, um, believing, uh, you know, certain principles or statements, stuff like that, as opposed to really trusting in a person. And, and so, again, the language of theology shapes the way that we, we try to solve these problems. Uh, the Greek has a lot of words for the, you know, that are body words. Mm-hmm. But in our current culture, a lot of people are going to yoga and the Eastern things to say, you know, how do I relate to my body? Because the Bible doesn't say anything about it. Well, yes, it does, <clears throat> except our translations have all changed body expressions into intellectual abstract concepts, <clears throat> which are, uh, you know, if we were looking for beliefs, that would be the way to do it. If we're looking at for a, what is my sensed experience of God's presence like? Um, it's not a contradiction to beliefs, but it's a whole different way of trying to translate what what God is doing. So, you know, you're mentioning, I believe it was Greg said so, that, you know, we really need to reflect about this. Well, I'd really suggest let's go back and reflect on what the Bible says and say, is this maybe what God was trying to say for us that didn't make it through the first translation, but it's there in the text. Mm -hmm. So I really don't want to end up with something different than what the text says. But I do think sometimes we have to wrestle a little bit with how we translated it Mm -hmm. uh, to get back to what God was trying to to see. See, I think God really knows how the brain works. And so sometimes he's trying to tell us something, (laughs) but the translator didn't quite get that nuance down. Yeah. Uh, So that when we got into an abstract idea, uh, it doesn't really work as well as it did originally. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So on a personal note, what, what would you say um, in your experience and your years and your uh, influences or what what is the most profound lesson you've learned in your journey of faith in regards to spiritual and emotional maturity? Well, I think the, the way I would probably summarize it is this, and that is that as long as I... Um, work on everything that I understand. I never become more than my own mind and solutions. I actually need an active involvement from God to bring something into my life. That's more than I could have imagined. But on the other side, if I only do these kind of wonderful thinking with God and I never practice it with human beings, uh, my brain doesn't learn it in any practical way. So everything I learn from God, I need to practice with other people or it doesn't become part of my character. Mm. If I only practice with other people what they do, I become a human being like everybody else. So there's there's this built-in <laughs> tension that, that I, I must learn from God that I am more than I thought I was. Mm. Mm. Uh, that there's things he could do in my life that I would never imagine. And there's things he can do in other people's lives. And I must lean into that too. But if we don't practice it together, it never becomes real. Uh, 
you can't live it out. And so putting those two things together, I think, is, is what I'd like to end with, you know. Uh, Listen to God, practice with people. Ah, that's good. That's, that's good. Yeah. Uh, it's like it's, it's like a honeypot. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I just can't. It's just, uh, I think back of, of my time living in uh, Northern Africa, Middle East, and I think about, you know, formation of my own life. And I think about those experiences in that culture, yeah. you know, and understanding uh, that context of where it's at now. And then coming back into a Western culture, into the Western church, uh, you know, uh, and, and seeing the differences, but yet... You, connecting some of these things that he's talking about, but watching even my own life group as even last night as we struggled in the conversation of that desire to see God in his presence. And yet most of us go back and say, well, I just need to do this or do that. But yet it's so, it's so different than, yeah. than that. And then how do we actually practice that out living sent, you know, among our neighborhoods, among our communities, among our, among people that are different people. than yeah. that are different than us. Right. Uh, so just really, uh, th- this could keep going on and on and on. This will, I listen, I go back and listen to all the podcasts, but yeah. my shorthand was not good enough for some <laughs> yeah, of the yeah. statements here. Yeah. So we'll I'm be going, listening to this again. Yeah, I'm going back to this and referring to my friends. But uh, Jim, how do people learn more about your work, what you're doing, and Life Model Works? Well, we got a little website called lifemodelworks.org that's constantly under uh, revision to try to get it to work right. But I suppose that's the best place to to start. And um, um, what I suggest is that, uh, you know, if you find something there that's interesting, we've got some study groups to introduce people to it. Uh, we partner with a number of organizations. But find somebody else and start studying uh, or, or reading something like the other half of church that seems to be the the, church, the book that most people find uh, easy to, to start with you know what would happen if we had a full brain Christianity use both sides of our brain get together with a group and start discussing you know what about that lands with you and, and makes sense that might be how I'd start excellent very that's good. good that's good thank you so much for being on the podcast today, I know it's going to be a benefit to, to many Absolutely. folks and certainly some great takeaways on that. So uh, any last thoughts from you guys? It's good stuff. I got, I got to listen again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Reimagine podcast. As always, you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, and download any of the episodes and rate them. You can also check us out on reimaginecast.com. We'd love to hear from you. And so for Brad and Brian, I'm Greg. Thanks for listening to the Reimagine podcast.